This is the final week of our Acts sermon series where we're talking about the church is alive, so the course is appropriate on Pentecost Sunday. To finish this series, we're going to start a new series next uh, for June about Genesis. Now, you're probably thinking, how in the world will you cover the book of Genesis in four weeks? The answer is we won't. Um, but we'll get a good little coverage of a little bit of Genesis, so that's going to be called First Things. So that'll be starting uh, next Sunday, so I invite you to come back for that. Now, if you remember uh, about my life, I, you, you wouldn't know that I lived in Goldsboro in eastern North Carolina for about seven years when I was a, a younger version of myself. And uh, in the early 90s, there was, and I've talked about this before, um, Kinston basketball was like the greatest. It probably still is, I don't know. But if the odds of getting in the NBA are 3 in 10,000. If you played high school basketball in Kinston, the odds are only 1 in 57. So many players come out of that town. It's crazy. Even to this very day, there's a number of guys in the NBA now who played in Kinston. Now, when I grew up there, Kinston was a powerhouse. Jerry Stackhouse was playing at the time uh, at their high school there. And my brother went to Eastern Wayne, which was the county next door. And uh, if Kinston was the greatest, we were like the bad news bears. I mean, we were like... It was awful. Eastern Wayne was not good at basketball. And, but my brother's good friend, Brian, played for Eastern Wayne. And Brian was about 5'7", maybe 120 pounds soaking wet. I mean, he defensively, a total liability, okay? But Brian could straight up shoot it. I mean, he had a beautiful shot. And so he started at guard for Eastern Wayne. Well, it came time for us to play Kinston one year, and they came to Eastern Wayne's gym, but it might as well have been a home game for them because all their fans came. And there was this little segment of Eastern Wayne people there. And they were, we were saying, if we don't lose by 50, we'll be lucky, right? That's the goal. That's the goal. Let's just lose by less than 50 and we'll feel good about ourselves. Well, the game started. It quickly got out of hand. They started running up the score, dunks, alley-oops, a lot of fun to watch, actually. Um, at one point, a guy that we would later go on to play for NC State from Kinston, he jumped over Brian and dunked the ball and patted Brian on the head after the dunk. There, there, little boy. So they got to the end of the game. We were literally losing by 50. And we had the ball with a few seconds left. And we drew up a play. Uh, Brian flared to the corner, passed the ball to him, shot at the buzzer, three-pointer, bam, we lost by 47. And the Eastern Wayne crowd is like, yes! You suck, Kinston! Right? And the Kinston people are like, what is wrong with these people? What planet are you from? You just got destroyed. We gave up a long time ago. We put the bench in in the second half, and we still beat you by 47. How in the world are you celebrating in the face of defeat? You look like idiots, right? This is not a bad picture of Pentecost. Celebration, but um, internally, externally, defeat. We've lost. Like the eyes of the world, the church is done. Internally, not so much. How in the world could the early church have celebrated, in a sense, in the face of defeat? Well, here's an answer. It's not a lighter. Fire. Fire from above. Help them celebrate in the face of defeat. Without that, 
they're not going to be celebrating anything. In their own human ability, no way. But with the power of God, all things are possible. And because that fire from above came, the presence of the Spirit came. It's a better work or else my illustration is moot. There we go. Because after the crucifixion, they're in hiding. After the ascension, they're waiting. And they're waiting in the place that Jesus told them to go. And they waited for the advocate, Jesus said, to come. What does that even mean? We don't know. Let's go and wait for it. Because he told us to. And after those 10 days that they waited, everything turned upside down. See, in the eyes of the world, they were a fringe minority that was wasting their time. You've lost the game. You're down by 50. You're down by 47. Who cares? Just run on the clock and go home. And in the physical realm, that would appear, appear to be true. But in the unseen, in the spiritual, actually, a great work was being done that God would do something terrific and spectacular that they could not have even anticipated. And you see this in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation from under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are these not, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native Language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, oh, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. We'll stop there. When you get to the passage here, and the Spirit came upon them in power, the word in Greek is dunamis, where we get our word for dynamite. That there was an explosive quality to what the Holy Spirit did in their midst. And that's the best term they could come up with, that it was so powerful and pervasive, all the other outsiders could look at and sneer about is, oh, they're drunk. They're drinking wine. And Peter has a little bit of humor. He's like, well, guys, it's too early for that, okay? Maybe later we'll have a glass of wine. I don't know. But right now, 9 a.m., are you kidding me? That's not what's happening right now. But because they persisted in prayer, God came through in a powerful way. Now, how long had they been waiting? They had been waiting for 10 days, a week and a half. They had gone to the upper room in Jerusalem as Jesus told them to do. 10 days they were waiting. And because they persisted in prayer, now, in those 10 days, do you think by day eight or nine, they could have thought, you know what? 
I, I'm feeling tempted to give this up, y'all. This seems, let's, it's nothing's going to happen. We don't need to continue to, to wait like this in prayer. But maybe they learned their lesson. Clearly they did. R- remember the night before Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus prays all night? And he tries to get the disciples to pray with him, and what do they do? They fall asleep. And he, even he, Jesus said, you can't stay up with me one night in prayer? Even he was kind of astounded by that. But regardless, ever since then, they clearly they learned their lesson, and they are clinging to Jesus' promise. That's, that's really all they have left. And in many ways, that's the best thing they have left. And these were not polite prayers, These were not prayers like before a meal, like a cursory sort of thing you do. These are prayers of desperation, right? I mean, imagine if you're up in the upper room with these people for a week, eight, nine, then 10 days. You're you're saying, Jesus, we're groaning for you. We're expecting you. We need you. Because if you don't come through with this, we can't do this. This church thing is your idea, right? It's not human ability that's going to make this thing work. It's the power of God given to those who believe. You know, I would like to think our culture, well, our culture is extremely impatient today, isn't it? And I re- reflect that as well. Many times, though, I think we don't experience God in the ways like this because we're not willing to wait for it. We're not willing to wait for it. We're not willing to align ourselves with his timing. His timing does not always work in the way that we would would wish it would. It's a great reminder to not give up in prayer and to regain your attention and your appetite for God. Just to wait on God and let God be God. And that's what they did. They're expecting to receive power from on high. But our culture today is very scrollable, isn't it? It's all a feed or swipeable. It, apparently in the year 2000, the average attention span was 12 seconds. In the year 2020, the average attention span is eight seconds. And allegedly, I don't know how you determine this, the attention span of a goldfish is eight seconds. I would say in 2023, it's probably even smaller now because I do it all the time. You swipe up through videos and stuff on Instagram. I don't watch them for eight seconds. I might watch it for three. But here's the deal, though. It's not really an attention span. It's more like an attention window. Because if you grab people's attention in those eight or less seconds, people dive in on content for hours, don't they? Like, how many of your children just want to go on YouTube and just watch videos <laughs> for hours? So we'll, we'll, we'll dive into stuff. So it's not really a, it's more like a window or a filter. So I'm going to say this. If you're listening to me today or you see this online, don't swipe by. Don't scroll through this. Because what I'm getting ready to say is really, really important. For example, Psalm 145. Listen to these words. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Is this not what Pentecost, what they were doing? They're calling on him. They're desiring for him. And he saved them. He gave them power from on high. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. I would encourage you, don't swipe by. Your personal Pentecost could be right around the corner if you would persist, if you would draw near, 
if you would not relent and give in and give up. God will, and God will strengthen us. God will give us power to continue in prayer, to continue waiting on him. Now, some of you might not have known this, but in the, in the year 18, in the 1800s, especially through the Civil War, eight out of 10 Americans were Methodists. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy? The vast majority of our country, now there weren't as many people, but still, the vast majority of our country was Methodist. There was a Methodist a church in almost every town in the, in the United States in those years. And it was always said that the, the person that could, you could count on to be up during a rainstorm would be uh, a Methodist preacher out on the streets and like the lamp lighter or the person that put the lamps out. There was this fervor about the Methodist movement. There was a sense of deep abiding prayer for the, the spirit of God to move across the face of this country. It did not happen by accident. It happened because thousands of people were praying and acting upon the will of God on the United States of America. And so what happened was, in the year 1800, this huge revival broke out, literally in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. Now, it wasn't in Asbury, I'm not, but it was such a move of God, the presence of God was so manifest in that geographic location that 20,000 people went to that spot and did what they call a camp meeting for weeks. Can you believe this? Now, to give you some context, the population of one of the largest cities in the country at that time, Baltimore, was 26,000. So you had the, essentially the, the population of one of the biggest cities in the country in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. And what happened is from 1801 to 1803, there was a revival swept across Kentucky up to the northeast and through Maryland and all across that part of the United States. Our first bishop of United Methodist Church, Francis Asbury, said this about that revival. He said, this revival along the western shore of Maryland and elsewhere was exactly what I've been agonizing, agonizing for for many years. Prayer precedes moves of God every time. As I said a few weeks ago, prayer, like Watchman Nee said, prayer is like laying the rails for the Holy Spirit engine to come. And because the early disciples were praying and seeking God and they didn't give up and they, they pushed forward, they didn't scroll through, the Spirit came through in power. And I don't know about y'all, but I want to experience God like that. I want to experience church like that. I want to be a part of the move of the Holy Spirit like that. Amen? Otherwise, why are we here? <laughs> We're not here to play church. We're here to encounter the Holy Spirit. And the main way that comes is initially through prayer. Don't forget, Pentecost happened in community, didn't it? There were no lone rangers in that room. It came through a group of people who clung to the promises of God in prayer and they didn't let go. Asbury said this about prayer. Prayer is the sword of the preacher, the life of the Christian, the terror of hell, and the devil's plague. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary to India, said, unless the Holy Spirit fills, the human spirit fails. I'm going to make two points here about Pentecost. That, And when I, when I read this story, 
I hear external pressure. You see people sneering on the outside, throwing accusations. And yet there's internal spiritual fire, right? There's external pressure, internal spiritual fire. So let's talk about the external pressure part. Obviously, the church would then go on to experience incredible growth, but also incredible persecution. Yes, for hundreds and hundreds of years, even to this very day, my friends, thousands of Christians get killed every day for their faith all around the world. But the Christian life, whether you're in ministry getting paid for or you're living as a Christian in the world today, it will never be a boulevard of green lights, will it? There will be setbacks. There will be problems. Life is not easy in that regard. You can anticipate difficulty and discouragement many times. Here's the thing about the devil. He doesn't have many, many tricks in his bag. He just has a few. And the main one is discouragement, really de- deception. He wants to confuse people and deceive them and to, th- to get you into a place of discouragement and hold you there. That's one of the main things he does to affect our spiritual lives negatively, to really trick you into thinking that who you are right now and your discouragement is all that you're ever, you will ever be. And he wants to hold you there. There's nothing more to your relationship with God. You've encountered everything you're going to encounter. Don't expect the Holy Spirit to do great things anymore. You're down by 47. The game's over. Go home. Give up. You don't need to, 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 to think about any of that anymore. No. Yes, we will have trouble in this world. There will be attacks against the church. That's always been that, the case. You will have trouble, as Jesus said. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. I mean, think about this. Did Jesus walk in external pressure from the outside? Did he have opponents? Yeah, he did. To the point they killed him for it. He walked in that all the time. Did John Wesley have opponents? Absolutely. I, I think, I'm not sure if this is true. It sounds sort of um, apocryphal, but I like the story that Wesley is right, John Wesley's riding on his horse across the countryside, and someone chucks a brick at him, and it misses his head, and he gets down on the ground on his knees and thanks God that he hasn't lost his witness. It's like, thank you, God, I'm still being persecuted. <laughs> that says something about John Wesley. Um, no, it's nothing new to face opposition. The question is how you handle it in the moment, right? Chuck Swindoll said life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. That is such a good quote. That so many people seem to think that it's everything that's going on is someone else's fault. Now, if you live in that mentality, it's always someone else's fault and not my fault. Um, I understand it. But sometimes the hardest work is the internal work. It is. It hurts our pride and our ego to go, you know what, maybe it is my fault. Maybe I'm the one making it awkward. Maybe I'm the one making it divisive. Maybe, maybe it is something that I need to open, have an open hand and a place of surrender and repentance over. That it could be my doing. This is what they were facing at Pentecost. The external pressure they faced, they had no money, they had no resources, they didn't even have a Bible like we have. They had, of course, the, old, the Hebrew scriptures, and they had some early letters that maybe have started to circulate. But in that context, 
they responded in a way that said, we're gonna press into God and trust you, Lord, for breakthrough. So there's the external pressure, but in the internal spiritual fire, they were more alive than ever. They were more alive than ever. Jesus lived in intimacy with the Spirit on a daily basis. Internally, he was alive to God, just like we can be, right? We can be deeply rooted in the truths of God and walk through all sorts of circumstances. For example, in Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit and he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Luke 1, of course, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 10, he felt joy through the Spirit. Hebrews 9, it says that he offered his life for us through the Spirit. Romans 8, 11, that Jesus was raised, to, raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And the next verse of Romans says this amazing thing, that the same Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead can live within you. Think about that. I've said this before, but do you believe that God loves you as much as he loves his son? Or do you think that God's love for you is somehow lesser? Do you believe that God has JV love for you, but Jesus is varsity love? This is critical, because a lot of Christians seem to think that they are lesser than But the Bible says that everyone who trusts in him, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, can live within you. There's not not modes to the love of God. The spirit of God doesn't have favorites. I would encourage you to rethink how you, what do you believe about how God loves you? Because the answer to that question is really important. But Jesus walked in intimate fellowship with the spirit here's the thing about the Holy Spirit, as we see in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's power can't be bought or tamed or controlled. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that the Spirit is like the wind. He comes and goes as he pleases. Now, the wind is always present, isn't it? Yes. But sometimes the Spirit moves in ways that we didn't anticipate, that we didn't plan for. In Acts chapter 8, Peter heals somebody, and a sorcerer comes up to them and goes, hey, I want to basically buy the power that I just experienced, saw you pull off. No, you can't buy God. You can't tame God. You can't use God for your agenda. The Spirit of God is like a strong wind, like a fire, like an uncontrollable in in a good way. And what I love about what God is doing lately at this church in particular is that we're not just praying, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here but we mean it, don't we? We mean it. At this church, we want to walk in the Spirit. We want to grow in knowledge and intimacy of the Holy Spirit. We want to worship in the Spirit. I want and we want to, to experience the fullness of the promises that are contained in this book. Now, some churches I've been to could, when they say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, it really means you're welcome here as long as you don't change anything. Yeah, you're welcome here as long as you don't make me uncomfortable or uh, as long as you do what I want you to do, right? Like, for example, does anybody have a weird uncle? Anybody have a weird uncle? It's okay, you, know, you can admit it, they're, maybe they're not here. Or maybe you're the weird uncle, I don't know. 
Either way, the answer will be yes to one of those questions. Now, some churches can treat the Holy Spirit like the weird uncle. The weird uncle you see once a year on Christmas, right? And you're like, yeah, 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 we're family, but don't get too close, okay? I'll see you again next year. No, why would we be afraid of the Holy Spirit moving? Because the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit is good. Not only that, without the Spirit's presence, living the Christian life is impossible. We fall short. But on Pentecost Sunday, we don't just remember Pentecost and wistfully look back to the past and go, oh well, if only, that's nice. No, we want to welcome him presently in that we're not just interested in a controlled burn. It's sort of like if you, if you start a fire in a fireplace and you, you keep start the fire in the fireplace and you keep a couple of logs together, well, it goes pretty well, doesn't it? Now, what happens if you remove a log from the fire? Does it keep burning out apart from the fireplace? No, it doesn't. It eventually goes out. See, friends, in many ways, there could be people today who on the outside feel like they're failing. You, you simply are in a place of, hey, I'm down by 47 points. And that's, that's really all I know. I have a wick, but it's not lit. Does anyone feel like that? Does anybody at home feel like that? I'm living my life, but I have zero power. I don't feel like I encounter God as his promise in this book. I think God wants our lives to look like this. He wants our lives to be lit. He wants our, I just use a youth reference. That's lit, bro. Okay. Anyway. But you could be living in a place where you're down by 47 and you have no joy. That God wants us to, you know what? You will, like after I got saved and I became a Christian, did, did it make all my problems go away? No, it didn't. But what, it, what he did do for me, aside from giving me eternal life and making me a new creation in Christ, was that he gave me the resources so that I could walk through the fire, so that I could walk through the valley. Now, that's not easy, but it's the same promise that said the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives within you, and that God loves you the same as he loves his son. And that out of that realization comes a brand new life, my friends. So I'm gonna say a prayer. And if you're in a place right now where you're, you're living in a place of dryness, where God, I need a fresh wind of the Spirit on this flesh. If that's you, I would like to pray with you. So let's pray together. God, your promises are amazing. Your faithfulness is sure. God, forgive us for the ways that our expectations can be so low and we think this is all life is going to be. But that, God, you desire to fill us with an incredible joy and presence and peace, even in the presence of external difficulty and problems. Lord, you can make us masters of our souls. You can make us new creations that we never could do in our own strength. 
So Holy Spirit, rain down upon us. Give us a fresh wind, a fresh fire from above. We, you know we live in a world full of people looking for answers, people that long to know the truth. God, in your promise, we trust that you are present here and now to help your church, to help your people that you love so dearly. And I pray for any person here or at home that's in a place where they just feel empty. All I know is defeat. All I know is emptiness. All I know is being let down and I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Holy Spirit, fall upon them. Fill them with power from above and awaken their souls so they can walk in newness of life from this day into glory. Thank you for your grace, that this is truly an act of grace of this work of your spirit. We welcome you in this time, O God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.